What a privilege to be able to preach to you from God's Word and to open up Zechariah chapter 6 with you. Now, believers of all time have been looking for the return of Christ. This is, this is what is set squarely in our vision. But if I were to ask you about which specific event tied to the return of Christ that you are most looking forward to, which event would it be? The Lord is returning, but there are many things happening in that time frame. So what is it that you would be most looking for at his return? Would it be Christ's descent to earth in clouds of glowing flames? Would it be when he throws the Antichrist and false prophet alive right into the lake of fire? That, that might be up there. Yeah. Or would it be how Jesus will reign from Jerusalem and institute world peace for the next 1,000 years? Well, one event that I know that we are looking forward to seeing, and we will be there to witness it, but we can easily just bypass this when we study the return of Christ, it's his crowning ceremony. It is his coronation. Well, of course, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ will be crowned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords in a real sense on the earth, but we might not have in our minds that he will have a coronation ceremony, and for that... We are excited to get into the second half of Jeremiah chapter 6. You see, when Jesus returns, not only will the whole world obey his authority and follow his righteous laws, but the whole world will come to celebrate his arrival and install him as their king. There will be this glorious coronation ceremony. And the second half of Zechariah 6 illustrates that ceremony as far as we can understand it, and we're so grateful for the word of Zechariah here. So let's read the passage together to learn about how uh, the crowd will come together at his coronation. We'll read starting in verse 9. We'll also look at the crown that he will be given. And then we're going to look at the construction that is going to accompany this coronation. The crowd, the crown, and the construction, all related to the coronation of the king of kings. How's that for alliteration? All right. Let's read from Zechariah 6, starting at verse 9. And the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah. And you come the same day, and come into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have come from Babylon. And take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then you will say to him, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, and he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of Yahweh. Indeed, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh, and he who will bear the splendor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices." Now the crown will become a memorial in the temple of Yahweh to Halem, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off will come and build the temple of Yahweh. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you, and it will happen if you utterly listen to the voice of Yahweh your God. Well, our passage breaks down this way. The first point I mentioned is the crowd at the coronation. You see that in verse 10, really, but we start our passage from verse 9. So verses 9 and 10, the crowd at the coronation. The second point in the passage uh, takes a few different verses. It's uh, the crown 
for the coronation, the crown for the coronation, and that's verse 11, but it's also in verse 14, verses 11 and 14. The third part here that we see is the construction accompanying the coronation, the construction accompanying the coronation, and you see that in verses 12 and 13, and also in verse 15, 12 and 13, and skipping ahead to 15. Well, you'll recall that Zechariah has received now eight glorious visions of the Lord Jesus Christ all in a single night. Now, the visions have concluded, but the prophecies continue, and we have the rest of the book to see them. Well, what we see next is how all the visions uh, reach their purposeful end in the crowning ceremony of Christ the King. This beautiful event is prophesied not in a vision, but actually, and this is amazing, in a live-action depiction performed by Zechariah and the people of Israel in his day. A live-action depiction. Now, as you scan the passage, you see just a quick walkthrough here, verses 10 and 11, this live performance. This is that live depiction of Christ's future coronation. Specific people are called to return from exile and to prepare the crown. Then in verses 12 and 13, just as you scan through the passage, you see the theological significance of this live performance. And what is it? It's an eschatological significance. It's a coming reality in a distant future from Zechariah's day. And it says that a man whose name is Branch will build the temple. Then moving ahead in verses 14 and 15, you see that God reveals how this live-action view to the future is meant to be applied to Israel in Zechariah's day. It's the last line of verse 15, and I tried to slow down to read it because it's a lot of what we need as the conclusion for ourselves. It says, it will happen if you utterly listen to the voice of Yahweh your God. Well, let's start our study by looking at that first element of this passage, of this live role play of the future coronation of Christ, and we need to talk about the crowd that shows up, and you see that in verse 10. So that's our first point that we need to deal with, the aspect of the crowd at the coronation ceremony. Well, notice that the crowd that's going to make up the ceremony is made up of exiles, made up of exiles. These are exiles who are going to come for this live-action depiction, and they are Jews that still lived in Babylon even after the captivity had ended, and they've been trickling in, and Zechariah has been ministering in this Jerusalem, which is post-exilic. It's after the time of the exile, and several years have passed since the exile has ended, but the Jews are still trickling back in from Babylon. Well, in fact, Yahweh tells Zechariah right there in verse 10 that on the very day that this word of Yahweh is arriving as we read in verse 9, there are specific exiles, those named Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and they're arriving on that day from Babylon, or at least it seems that they're arriving on that day, but the word of the Lord has now gone forth on the day that Zechariah is supposed to act on the fact that they are now here. So notice the language in verse 10, and this is where we see this, this, in, uh, this uh, instant matchup between Zechariah and these exiles. Zechariah is to come the same day, the same day. And that's, uh, it seems to be the same day that the exiles come back home. And God has timed things so perfectly that this new coronation scene happens when the exiles are now here, those that need to be there for this live role play depiction of Christ's coronation. So as this caravan of exiles returns to Jerusalem on that day, Zechariah receives this prophecy, and that's just God's perfect timing. Because verse 10 tells us a lot about that crowd of exiles that we need to pay attention uh, to. Because they apply to the exiles that will be there at the future coronation of Christ. 
Here's some of the characteristics that come out in verse 10. Take a look, and we'll see how this gives us that, that double uh, time frame. We have Zechariah's time, but clearly we have the time of the return of Christ that we haven't seen yet. It's just prophesied here for us. So the first aspect or first characteristic of the crowd that you see is that the exiles make a willing offering to Yahweh. Zechariah isn't commanded to pull silver and gold out of their pockets. He just simply has to do what is written here, take an offering, take an offering from the exiles. The exiles arrive so that they can bless the Lord. This is what they're coming to do. They're going to bless the Lord out of their wealth. They willingly support the work of God, and that's what is made manifest by this call to just take the offering. They've come to give it. Zechariah doesn't force them to do a sacrifice. That's what they're coming back to do. They want to serve God out of the abundance of their resources. So what do they do? They pour out their wealth because they've been so richly blessed during their time in Babylon. Uh, You wouldn't think of that when you think of exiles, but uh, part of it is how the Lord allowed them to flourish under the Babylonian captivity, but also through the plunder of their wicked captors. They have now um, taken all of that wealth, and this has become the riches of Israel. So you might recall when we preached through Haggai, when we did Haggai 2, verses 7 and 8, and remember that Haggai is a contemporary of Zechariah, so they're always prophesying about uh, the same period of time to the same people, about the work of Yahweh specifically seen in Messiah, who is coming to reign. Uh, And the temple is that central focus. And when you get to Haggai 2, verses 7 and 8, here's the words that he says, I will shake all the nations. And they will come with the desirable things of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares Yahweh of hosts. Now this is a future vision. So now as the exiles are coming in, in our time, in Zechariah's time, in verse 10, they're bringing silver and gold. What does that depict? Um, it's an image. It's part of that, that live action role play of what will transform transpire when they come from all the nations. Then the exiles come and bring the wealth from those places. So, sure, it will take gold and silver and a lot of great effort to do this work of building a temple after the exile, but that's exactly what they need to do. That is exactly how they're going to serve the Lord. This is a work that has been started long ago. Now it needs to be accomplished. And in fact, it's going to be accomplished from this point on in about four years' time. Pretty amazing how quickly it can be done when the effort and the resources uh, are put together by people with their hearts in the right place. Now, it might be accomplished in a, in a meager way. It might seem a little lowly compared to that temple in the future, but that's no problem. In God's eyes, this was a glorious event, and the temple itself, this second temple, not the millennial temple, uh, although that will be glorious, but in God's eyes, the second temple is glorious too. And Haggai writes a lot to that end to reinforce their spirits. Of course, there's no temple like the future temple. And when Christ comes back to reign in his shining splendor, then Haggai 2.9 kicks in, which says the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former because we're waiting for Christ. We're always waiting for Christ to take up his seat. So now Zechariah is depicting this future coronation, and it is great, and it is glorious, and it involves this second temple too, and it needs to because that is great and glorious, just of a lesser glory than that which awaits for the future. 
So to depict the coronation, how does this work? The exiles have this role to play. They bring in their free will offerings. They contribute to God's glory for the temple in their day, even though it's not going to be as glorious as the one in the future, but they know that and they're prepared for that. And what we understand just from those gifts and just from that heart of service that they have, that this is a foretaste of this lavish outpouring that will happen when all the world's resources adorn that beautiful temple uh, for our beautiful Messiah. Now there's a second characteristic that pops up right here from verse 10 about this coronation crowd, and this helps us to understand what we will expect when Christ reigns from his throne. And it's what you've already seen several times. It's the fact that these folks who come are exiles. They're exiles. We've already discussed that a bit, but there is a future significance to calling these exiles um, into this scene so they can represent the type of crowd that will be at the coronation later on. It's because when Christ returns, he's going to cause, uh, cause all the exiles to come out of Babylon? Well, yes, the new Babylon, the mystery Babylon, the one that we can't quite see yet but the one that will be made up of all nations, Revelation 17 says, all peoples with all languages, that wicked world empire that now houses and and enslaves Christians. Even in our day-to-day, there are places where Christians definitely feel their exile. And I wonder if we feel that ourselves, that we are sojourners because we, uh, we don't have uh, a world order in which to have an ordered life according to the world's standards. We're in wicked Babylon, but wicked Babylon is yet a mystery as to when it will be revealed. But that's for the future. Now, all the way back from history, uh, Israel has known that they are exiles. They will be exiles. Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, we read specifically about those future exiles when Christ returns. Here's Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. Then Yahweh your God will return you from captivity and return his compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. This is what will happen when the great tribulation happens. This is what will happen when new Babylon is finally destroyed and all of God's people can flood out of those nations. And when they do, they will bring the wealth of those nations to adorn Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? So we can see how this little reenactment or future-casted enactment gives us an understanding of what's going to come and just helps us shape our understanding of this coronation ceremony of the King of Kings. This is a glorious promise for all believers of all time that they are exiles. They are in captivity under the God of this age, under the prince of the power of the air, within nations that hate Christ, that hate them. But while they're scattered now, they will be regathered. They will be regathered. And that's a message immediately for us. Now, there's a third characteristic of the crowd that we see in Zechariah's day that's going to impact how we imagine Christ at his coronation ceremony, and that comes from the names that are listed in verse 10. All right, well, I don't want to do a data dump on you, and of course, we don't want to treat this like 
a Hebrew lesson. I'll save that for a different environment. But verse 10 gives us uh, an understanding by the very names that are given of these exiles that they are godly exiles, that they have holy affections, that they have godly attitudes that are worthy to be imitated, and that will be seen in the future when Christ gathers his exiles after the great tribulation. So take a look at the list of names in verse 10, and the first one is Heldai, and that seems to mean uh, the Lord's world, the Lord's world. It's a name that seems to indicate that the exiles, like Heldai, have submitted themselves completely to God's sovereign rule in their lives in the world. You see, they may live in a wicked nation. They may be under the prince of the power of the air, but this is the Lord's world. And Heldai knows it. And he bears that name and bears that identity. This is his characteristic. It's a good characteristic. Now, there's another name, Tobijah, and this means Yahweh is good, Tobijah. That's the kind of statement that an exile could only express by faith, especially if he's an exile in a wicked environment. It takes faith in God, right, to, to look beyond your circumstances, to, to recognize that while you may be enslaved by the world standards, God is good. God is good. And that's Tobijah's name. Psalm 119.68 plays in my mind a lot these days. It says, you are good and you do good. Psalm 119.68. Think about that. As an exile in a dark and wicked land, you don't seem to witness much except evil around. But what this brother's name means is that he's witnessing to the good nature of a good God who not only has a good nature, but does good things to those that he has set his love upon. It takes spiritual renewal to to believe this. So the circumstances might be stained by the sin of others. It might be our ongoing nature of sin that that propels us to, to participate in the evils of this world. But in the vision of a redeemed exile, Yahweh is good. Yahweh is truly good. There's another name, Jediah. You see Jediah, and this means Yahweh knows, Yah knows. The believer struggles under the weight of the unrighteous society that he's in, has to fight evil leaders, at least uh, he has to suffer under them. These are the kinds of leaders that glorify immorality. They lead the weak into captivity, like the Babylonians have done all over their part of the world like our world leaders do today, at least spiritually and emotionally. Doesn't our world resemble a lot of Babylon from that perspective? But God knows. And by faith in the God of the Bible, we never forget that. Like exiles, like this brother, we trust that despite everything that we see around us, God knows. He knows our pain. He knows our trials. He also knows how long our pain and our trials need to last Because he wants to be perfectly glorified in every second of it. That's according to his wisdom. To know how to deal with our world in every tidbit, because he is immense and because he is omnipresent, because he fills everything with his infinity, and because he is good, he wisely uses everything to glorify himself. He knows. 
He knows exactly the right time to redeem us from captivity. He knows the right time to bring these brothers back to Jerusalem. And he knows the time to shatter the kingdoms so that only the kingdom of God stands. That's Haggai 2. And at that time then, the perfect time for the fulfillment of his glory in all wisdom, he will bring his exiles to himself so that they can worship in his physical presence. That's what we desire, isn't it? When we shout out Maranatha, that's what we're saying. Lord, please come, return, so that I can be with you to worship you physically. I want to see you face to face. Praise God that that Jesus would say it was better that he would leave, so he would give us his Holy Spirit that would so inhabit our hearts and flood our spiritual eyes with vision of Christ that we can have him more than we could if he was in one place and we were in another on the earth. But now, where we are, he is indwelling us. But the day will come that that cry of Maranatha will be fulfilled and we will see him and he'll be sitting on his throne. We need that. We need that. He knows. So these are the godly exiles in Zechariah's day, and we know that they are because their name represents their person, their identity. The question is, does their name represent our identity? Is this who we are? This epitomizes the godly exiles that, that they are. Does it epitomize the godly exiles that we are? Well, there's a fourth characteristic about the exiles in Zechariah's time that is particularly helpful as we think of that future time in which Christ will return to the earth and gather his crowd together for his coronation. And that's that these exiles, this crowd of exiles at that time and in the future are eager to worship and serve God immediately. They're eager to worship and serve God immediately. You see right there in verse 10 that as soon as Zechariah received his divine orders, and he, what did he do? He went to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. And this is where the exiles put themselves right to service in worshiping God. They start with giving the offering for the temple reconstruction, and we learn that the events happen immediately. This is that instantaneous, same-day uh, realization of this prophecy. Go make a crown, and then they do, and go to start this coronation ceremony, and so all the players come together. This is Zechariah's quick action to follow God's command, and that depicts the quick action that the future exiles will do. They will hurry. They will rush to Christ. They're not going to linger long in the broken, shattered ruins of their already ruinous society. Where do they want to be? They want to be in Jerusalem. They want to be in front of Christ. And what do they want to do? They want to gather up all the resources that they can bring to make Christ beautiful on his throne, the one who is already the beautiful one. They just want to adorn him for his beauty. And so the fact that the exiles are located in the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, is also important because the connection here we see in, just so that you, if you're writing this down, 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 21, this name, Zephaniah, is that he, it's a priest in, uh, in service to God during the Babylonian captivity. So now, Zephaniah is referenced as a priest in those passages. We see him here. This is Josiah, the son of that priest. We're a little bit later in the timeline. 
And so what we can see is these exiles come and they go right to a worshiper. They go right to a servant. Perhaps these exiles themselves represent future exiles that will go immediately to adorn the king on his throne by making him his crown, by taking all of these things and acting in service as priests for the millennial temple. That seems to be the connection here. When Messiah returns, godly men like these exiles are going to lead all of Israel and all of the world as worship leaders, starting from Jerusalem. Pretty beautiful. Now, just picture that future day when this countless mass of exiles will flood in. Can you picture what that might be like? It's probably hard. We don't necessarily even imagine what the temple could be like. We know Ezekiel 40 to 48 gives us these beautiful dimensions, but having all of this in our minds is already too much. But what about a coronation ceremony? And what about all of these exiles from the world? And then in the presence of the holy angels and all of the redeemed saints that have already been raised to glorified bodies. And now we're all descended there and we're shouting Hosanna to this King of Kings. We're arriving on the scene for this coronation. That's what we see. And we see this beautiful example of godly men that we need to imitate today on our way to being glorified one day and being those godly worshipers, which will happen. So it's a beautiful scene, and Zechariah is picturing that in his modest little way right there in a house. So this is the foretaste of what's to come. Now, we've looked a bit at the the crowd. Let's shift to the crown. Let's take a look at the crown for the coronation, and we see that in verses 11 and verses uh, uh, 11 and 14. The focus is on the crown, and the reason that the crown draws our eye like any coronation would is because the intricate artistry and the, the delicate value highlights the beauty and the worthiness of the one who wears it, doesn't it? When you see a crown, you see royalty. And what we see in verses 11, 14 is the crown of crowns sitting on the head of the king of kings, the Lord of lords. This is wondrous to behold. Take a look at verse 11. It talks about how the precious metals, this gold and the silver that the exiles have offered to the service of God are going to be crafted into not just any crown, but actually an ornate crown. How ornate will that crown be? Well, it's so ornate that the Hebrew term for crown is actually in the plural. It's crowns. So think of a plural sense there, the crown of crowns, the, the, uh, the greatest, most ultimate supreme crown that one could ever have. It's what Zechariah would do in gold and silver in their time, in their way, as intricate as that would be, as beautiful a representation, because we don't make paper crafts in representation of God. We're going to image as much as we can to get the best depiction and yet that's only, an, that's only a foretaste. There's only, all you can see in the gold and silver of what he does is the inherent value that will be shown in all of its intricacies later. There's no other crown like it. No empire in history has ever had a crown to sit on the head of any king like Jesus Christ. Well, that supreme worth, notice in verse 11, is a crown that Zechariah commissions not to sit on a king's head in his day. 
But the closest thing we would have to a king from the kingly line would be Zerubbabel, the governor. But it doesn't sit on his head. Whose head does the crown sit on? It sits on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. You see that in verse 11. Who is he? He's the high priest. He's not the king. Not a king. Now, you might recall from when we went through Zechariah chapter 3, especially verse 5, uh, and Joe went through this sermon, Joshua, the high priest, doesn't wear a crown. What does he wear? He wears a turban. It's a cloth wrapping that is fit for the high priest according to the prescriptions of the law. And there's no mistaking a turban, which is made out of cloth, and a crown, which is crafted with these fine metals. The crown is only for a king, but here Yahweh is commanding Zechariah to do the unthinkable, to crown the high priest Joshua in this coronation ceremony with the ornate crown that should only sit on the head of a king. And it's not just because there isn't a king to anoint. It's for a much greater significant purpose than we might see from our perspective today. You know, we don't necessarily even care. As long as the one wearing the crown is the ruler, we'll take it. it. seems to be how the world elects their leaders. Whoever is going to look the best sitting under a crown, we'll take it. Can't find anybody like that, but that's how these things go. But in Israel, there was no switching of roles. You couldn't just have anybody that seemed to be like King Saul, head and shoulders above the rest. He may have been a king, but he wasn't God's king. So there's no switching, especially of roles, between the king and the priest. And any attempt to do so, and we see examples of that in Old Testament history, it's going to end up in divine punishment. Best case scenario, you live the rest of your life as a leper, right? So we can think of examples where someone who is a king tries to act like a priest or um, any of these types of uh, switches that result in divine chastisement. But... Here's the thing. If somebody maybe comes into this exile coronation thing that's being put together, and they might have thought that this was to crown someone for the rulership of Israel in Zechariah's day, in Haggai's day, well, this is the moment that they figure out that that's not what this is about. That's just foreshadowing something else. It must be a future coronation because uh, Joshua is not going to accept this crown but he must. He must. And that's what you understand already. It's that Messiah in the future holds both of those offices. He is the king and he is the priest. So to put the crown on the head of the priest is to look forward in time and see, yep, that's exactly right. The priest is going to wear the crown because that priest is the king. This is the merging of these two roles Now, you've seen that before in chapter 4. I had the opportunity to preach on that golden lampstand and the two olive trees that flank it and pour in their golden oil into it. And what we find is that Christ is both the king and the priest. And so all of this pomp and circumstance that's happening for Joshua the high priest, wearing a grandiose crown, should not embarrass him at all and shouldn't result in leprosy. Okay, this is not about Joshua. These are glorious events that are being depicted for a more glorious future when Yahweh, the Son, this king priest, is celebrated by all the peoples of the world. And they understood that that's what was happening. He is celebrated as the one who mediates the presence of the Father to man. He's the one who rules as king over all mankind. And he's also the one who mediates on behalf of sinful man to the Father 
by the precious blood that he has shed. He now uses that to intercede for the people that he has atoned for. So Jesus Christ alone can bring sinners to God with his precious blood. It takes his once-for-all sacrifice, and we read that throughout the book of Hebrews. This is understood. He has perfectly satisfied the Father, and so he is that perfect priest. And he also commands over all people. Well, what we know from verse 14 is that this crown was not just some little makeshift thing. It was done with the best intentions, but also the best beauty that it could have. And what we understand is that the crown, according to verse 14, will become a memorial in the temple of Yahweh. Now, the idea of a memorial in this context is a lot of how we would think about memorials. So it doesn't take a lot to understand how a memorial works, except to mention that the crown serves as a symbol to commemorate a lesson, right? Just like any type of memorial would be. But in addition to the crown, which at that time is to picture the king priest who will wear it, there's also more names that are listed, a couple that we recognize and a couple that are new. Let me just breeze through this a little bit so that you can understand what is tied to this memorial of the crown. Uh, We need to uh, understand the name Halem. We see Tobijah already, we see Jediah, and we now see Hain mentioned as the son of Zephaniah. Well, we already know Tobijah, Yahweh is good. Yahweh is good. And we know Jediah, Yahweh knows. Yahweh knows. Both of them among the returned exiles are ready, they're willing, they're eager to instantaneously praise God, immediately pour forth everything they have. They will serve as priests in the temple of God if given the opportunity. Now, it seems possible that the other names, Halem and Hain, are not actually two new people, but they're additional names given to the other two. So, what do we see? In verse 10, we see the name Heldai, and now Halem seems to associate with that. And that would bring another name uh, and another meaning to Heldai. What would that be? Well, Halem means strength. Halem means strength. And so when added to Heldai, which means the Lord's world, talking about his sovereign control over all things, we get a bigger picture of what the exile must believe. They must trust in God's strength to sovereignly control all things by his supreme power. That seems to be what this combination of names means. Now, the name Hain seems to be added on to the name Joshua. They're the son of Zephaniah. Now, Hain, what does that mean? Oh, this is a great one. This is one of the earliest flashcards you'll ever learn in Hebrew. Grace, kindness. We'll always remember the grace of God, won't we? That grace of God that saved us, that will continue to rule over us. Romans 5.2 says that it is by the grace of God that we now stand in Christ's righteousness. We'll never forget the kindness of God. You can see why the, the crown and these names memorialize something for us. Romans 2.4 says it's the kindness of God that has led us to repentance so that we could even worship him in his presence. So in this way, the memorial of Joshua's crown is designed to cause people throughout time to contemplate God's perfect rule as king and his perfect reconciliation as priest. But let me just linger a little bit longer on these names. I think it's so significant that we have these names to commemorate, these exiles to keep in mind throughout all history 
Now, this might be the first time you've ever seen those names. I would understand that. But we cannot forget them. We need to hold them dear as we long for Christ to come. We're told to remember their names because their names represent, just like what we've done, this perfect connection between God's excellencies, God's perfections, his attributes, and the godly qualities that should mark the life of every believer. Consider Heldai. We just talked about him. He seems to be Halim because God is sovereign. Exiles who live by faith, what do they need to remember? No matter what this evil world schemes against them, God is strong to bring them through and to cause them one day to see Christ face to face. That's what Heldai and Halim need to 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 be in our minds as we move forward in our exile. Consider Tobijah. Sojourners on this earth need to remember, like we've said, that God is good all the time. We're going to navigate so many trials, but we need to proclaim at all times that God is good, not only in his nature, but he's good in his actions toward us, the very ones that he's doing today. No matter what we're going through, God is good and he does good. And finally, look at Jediah one more time. As exiles, we never see what's around the bend. We don't know what he has in store for us. We don't know what's next in our spiritual journey or our physical journey in this world. In a way, we trudge forward toward the temple of the Lord. We We are working our way by his sovereign design, but we trust in God's omniscience. Yahweh knows all things. So the question then is, will you be like these exiles? These very names, these very identities, will they mark your days in your exile? Will you proclaim the excellencies of God in your mind, in your heart, through your mouth to others, in your very life, in your feet as you walk? Or will you stray? Will you continue to be sucked up into this spirit of Babylon these days in which we live? Or will you be like these exiles? Don't forget them. They matter not just in the end. They matter for you. That's why we have them written in Scripture for us, isn't it? Never forget who God remembers. Never forget who God remembers. Well, we've considered the coronation crowd, the coronation crown, and now we move in to look at the third aspect of the passage that puts both the crowd and the crown to work in both Zechariah's time and in the future. It's the construction accompanying the coronation. And we learn about that construction in verses 12 and 13, and also in verse 15. Well, as you guessed it, following this representative coronation ceremony under uh, Zechariah's direction, the people and their leader need to press on in the work, and they need to finish it up, and they will get the temple built in just a few more years. And even the work of rebuilding the temple in their day is representative of what Messiah will do when he returns to Israel and receives his crown. So we see from that coronation scene, we see that action plan that ultimately will be accomplished by Christ and through Christ in the future. It's a portrayal of receiving the crown on the priest's head that signifies the start of an important ministry that Messiah will undertake and he will complete when he is crowned. And that ministry is the construction of the millennial temple. And it is from that millennial temple that he will spread his glorious presence throughout the world. And that's why it's so essential for us to understand that there is a temple awaiting the future. 
Look at the significance of this, uh, this work of Messiah starting in verse 12. Zechariah is charged with saying to Joshua the high priest these words, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch. Now there are several things worth noting just in the first statement. Uh, first, notice that Messiah is referred to as a man. He is a man in the line of Adam. But he's like Adam, but not like Adam. He's like Adam in having flesh in every way except sin. But important to our context of calling him a man, he's not like Adam in one particular way. This man, Jesus, never did what Adam, uh, or he does, let me say that, what Adam never did, even though Adam was commanded to. And what is that? It's to rule and subdue the entire world. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. This is... So important in our, in our thinking of biblical anthropology, the study of man, our, our thoughts on Christology, and our understanding of even how sin has disrupted the work that Adam was called to do. Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God gave the first man this command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. But after Adam's fall into sin, which is recorded in Genesis chapter 3, man's rulership over the earth, over all creation, and all people was distorted. It was corrupted. And in most cases, it has remained flawed and ruinous, truly. But notice in our passage that this man, Messiah, is called Branch. He's called Branch. It's a term that harkens back to an earlier passage, Zechariah 3, where we also saw Joshua, Messiah is going to be God's servant called the branch. Now, in our passage, we learn a little bit more. It's referenced in Zechariah 3, but here it's given a little bit more uh, substance for us. What does it say about branch? He will branch out from where he is. Uh, What a branch does, right? Yahweh's branch will branch out from where he is in Jerusalem, this man, Messiah, all the way out from there. But Yahweh's branch wasn't always seen as great and glorious, not in the way that Zechariah would have us see him. Isaiah 53, 2 says of this branch, he grew up before Yahweh like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him doesn't seem in the eyes of Israel that he is the branch that spreads out from where he is. But when he returns to earth, make no mistake, the entire world will see him just as he is, that branch in all of his majestic glory. This Jesus, this branch, will spread out his limbs from Jerusalem, from where he is, we read in verse 12, out to the farthest reaches of the earth. Isaiah 4.2 captures this branching out. Listen to Isaiah 4.2. In that day, the branch of Yahweh will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and honor of those of Israel who escape, escape the great tribulation. Because under the shadow of Christ's mighty arms as the branch, after the tribulation, for those who escape that time of Jacob's troubles, And they enter into the millennial kingdom. Here's what the branch will do. This branch will rule the nations. 
He will subdue all evil. He will protect the vulnerable. He will provide shade to those exposed. From his own power, this branch will bear fruit for the famished across all of the earth. He's going to provide comfort for those that are weary. He's going to touch all of creation with his glory. This is Jesus Christ, the branch of God. This is the man that we're looking for. You see, that today, the world is looking for an antichrist. They can't find a good leader, so they're going to look for one that can consolidate all the world powers and come up with something. And they'll take anyone because they have an evil world system and they want a ruler that's fit for what they have designed. But we are looking for God's servant. We are looking for one who will rule in such a way that all of creation, every fish of the sea, every bird of the sky, every living thing that creeps on the ground, every person in every town, in every institution will display the glory of God in the glorious presence of Christ, which radiates out like a branch to cover the earth, starting in Jerusalem. This is what we look for. Isaiah 61.11 captures this radiating ministry of the branch so, so well. Isaiah 61.11 says, For as the earth brings forth its branches, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to branch out, so Lord Yahweh will cause righteousness and praise to branch out before all the nations. And the world's looking for an antichrist. The final phrase in our chapter, verse 12 uh, here, uh, the, in our chapter, verse 12, final phrase is, he will build the temple of Yahweh. And this speaks to how the branch is going to spread out his glory in all the earth. This is that construction project we're talking about. Future temple is what some Bible scholars will call the epicenter of God's glory, the center of world rule. And we've just seen some passages that point to that. Well, the coronation takes place, Christ is establishing his reign from Jerusalem. We understand that the building itself is uh, of just an, an immense supreme order as pictured in Ezekiel 40 to 48. These dimensions, these details of this millennial temple are more glorious, more enormous than anything Zechariah's people could possibly build. And yet they're doing a great job in their day. And, and it, it figures what will come in its own way. And it is glorious in God's sight. But look at verse 13 here. And now our eyes go way beyond whatever we might be seeing in front of Zechariah. Look at the, the, the terms here in verse 13. Splendor, rule, peace, which is shalom. To describe this temple that Christ will build as both king and priest. Passage says, indeed, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh, and he who will bear the splendor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. This man, this branch, this king, this priest will build for himself the highest seat of honor in the greatest of all buildings in all the world. And when he takes his seat of supreme authority as the glorious king priest, who holds both of these offices with full dignity, then he bears the splendor. The only one that can capture the weight of all of this glory is Christ. No one can overthrow him. In fact, he's just going to annihilate Antichrist and the beast, when and the false prophet, when he arrives, he's going to breathe fire on him, and they go alive into the lake of fire. 
There is no one to stand against him. He does all of that before he takes his seat. And it says that he will always provide his counsel of peace, that true biblical shalom, that holistic world restoration that we look for starting in the heart and then working its way in transformed lives that become transformed communities, that become transformed cities, transformed governments. All of this happens radiating out from branch from his temple when he takes his seat in all of his splendor, which only he can bear. And in that day before his throne, all the people are going to come to him just like the exiles in Zechariah's did, they will rush to get to him. They want to bow before him in worship. And it says that he will be a priest on his throne. He will be a priest on his throne. And from that throne then, he's going to enforce this, that exactly what a king must do. You are charged to follow this law and this law, and this law. And what is that law? That they must fulfill this perfect standard of God's righteousness. But he, as the high priest, he says, I've already fulfilled that. I fulfilled that. I fulfilled that. God is perfectly pleased in me. Come to me because I have fulfilled my own law. The king's law is fulfilled by the high priest. And so as he is this perfect high priest sitting on the throne and as people come to adorn him in all of his inherent beauty, and they, they don't add to him, but they bring to him, then he reminds the people that he alone was the one worthy to live that perfect life. He is the one that was worthy to make that once-for-all sacrifice with his precious blood. It is he alone that could fulfill all the righteousness of the Father. And he is the one alone who can equip all worshipers to be righteous in the eyes of God. And he does that by declaring them righteous in his throne room. And in his throne room, where he is, that's where we want to be. We want to be with him. And so we get this picture of that in its earthy representation under Zechariah. But I invite you to dream big on what that could look like when we see all of the throngs of heaven and earth that stand declared righteous now already before him and ascribe to him all the glory as he bears the weight of that splendor sitting on his throne Think of what the throne room then becomes to a believer. This is an important picture I'd like you to follow. This throne room of the king priest perfectly represents what? How the courtroom of God who is judge has been transformed into the family room of God the Father. The throne room for a true worshiper isn't a courtroom at all. It's a family room. Think of what that means, that sinners have been justified by the blood of Christ. Christ is their advocate in the courtroom of God. Their pardon has now been sealed. The paperwork has been drawn up, and it's new paperwork that they, the, this former criminal gets. It's adoption papers as a child. Can you picture that? That is what's true of you. Criminal against God has become a child of God. And in that future day when Christ, as this king priest, bears his splendor and sits to rule on his throne, we, like Zechariah's exiles, we will come running to him. 
Because what we want is nothing short of laying down our very selves at his feet. We're not going to drag our feet to go stand before him like he's some judge. You see, we're not awaiting a death sentence, no. We're going to come running to the temple. We're going to go up those steps into the throne room, straight to the feet of Christ. And so it is. To come to the throne room is just like crawling in the Father's lap because we're his child, because of the one who sits there. And this is what we want, to receive like a little child that tender embrace from the whole person of God represented in the Son who will be there right in front of us. Do you long for that? The exiles of Zechariah's day did. Those are the holy affections we need to hold on to. We need to commemorate them. And we will watch throngs of exiles come out of the millennium for that very glorious reality. And that's the idea. The construction of his temple is absolutely imperative here. Look at verse 15 that says, that those who are far off will come and build the temple of Yahweh. See, in verses 12 and 13, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who will build the temple of Yahweh. And yet verse 15 says there are participants. There are. Yes, only the true Davidic king can fulfill what was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, that, that God's throne would endure forever and that it would be truly built by the Davidic king. But Jews and Gentiles that are saved in the end times, they're eagerly desiring, or they will at that time, to participate in the work that Christ is doing. They want to put their hand to the work, and Christ will supervise it. Those future exiles, they'll flock to Jerusalem. They will behold God's mighty branch, and they're going to participate in any way they can to spread his glory as far and wide as worship leaders as they can. And that begins with completing the millennial temple with all of its incredible supreme details. Those are the godly attitudes that we need to have. Now, the rest of verse 15 reflects how this prophecy is fulfilled. It says... Uh, in the words of Jeremiah, then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. When? When all of this is fulfilled in the end. You'll see it. You'll know that this was fulfilled. But the passage ends with a strong challenge. It's a bit of a zinger. Zechariah states, and it will happen if you utterly listen to the voice of Yahweh your God. Now, of course, God himself is going to achieve his own coronation. He's the one that does it. It doesn't take exiles to crown him, but they participate in this as the crowd. And they are a part in some way of fashioning his crown, which only he can wear. And it's always been that way. And they will participate in the construction of his temple where only he can sit. But that last phrase is a zinger because it comes with a series of questions implied. These are some questions that I'd like to ask you based on this last last phrase, and it will happen if you utterly listen to the voice of Yahweh your God. These are questions that I would ask you to answer in your own heart like the exiles of Zechariah's day would have needed to. They would have caught this. First, will you... Respond to this prophecy by obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Will you utterly listen to him? Will you listen to his word and forsake your sin? With all of this head knowledge that you now have, will it enter into your heart? Will you live your life even now as a citizen of the kingdom of God, awaiting that future day? Will you live your life as an exile today with the godly heart attitudes that we've seen that match the godly attitudes of the exiles that will come in the future? Let me just say it this way. Don't leave the promise of Christ's glorious presence for other people to enjoy. Enjoy it yourself by repenting of your sin, believing in this branch, and and participating in him spreading his glory. Come under the authority of Jesus as king, but beg him as great high priest in this very moment to purify you. There may be someone here that doesn't know him, that doesn't have his shalom, has no access to peace in their yet darkened heart. You only have anxious troubles. You have no godly affections for Christ. And if you won't bow before him, It might be because you say, but that's far off. I'll worship him in that day. This is wicked foolishness, isn't it? You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. There isn't tomorrow for you if you will not pursue him today. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 gives a charge to these exiles. He speaks to exiles in 1 Corinthians 6 that will not come to Christ in that day or in his day or any other day, in Zechariah's day. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? But he does speak to those exiles on the earth who are working on those heart attitudes by the power and the grace of Christ. And he says to them, you're not like those others that are still captive and only want to be captive to evil, wicked Babylon. You are like this, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And so what must an exile that that seeks Christ as king to unshackle them from the wickedness that surrounds them. What must that exile do? Run with greater fervor today toward Christ and serve him and worship him and in a spiritual way participate even now in a coronation ceremony to him. You see, we wait for him to be crowned as king But I ask you, in your heart, is he crowned as king? You will worship him one day on bended knee, but do you worship him today? This is why this is in scripture. Now, as we close, I just need to mention that this morning, in our first service, we sang a hymn that captures the heart attitude of a faithful exile today, of you and of me, if you believe. It was hymn number 127. It was called, Look Ye Saints, the Sight is Glorious. Did you know that you were singing about the coronation of the king? I was pleasantly surprised. 
I want to read you the lyrics that you sang earlier. And I want you to close your eyes as I do so that you can capture the central idea in the hymn that you can even now participate in a spiritual coronation by crowning Christ as king priest in your hearts. Please allow me to read this to you, and then I'll close in prayer. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight returned victorious, every knee to him shall bow. Crown him, crown him. Crowns become the victor's brow. Crowns become the victor's brow. Crown the Savior, angels crown him. Rich the trophies Jesus brings. In the seat of power enthrone him while the vault of heaven rings. Crown him, crown him. Crown the Savior, King of kings. Sinners in derision crowned him, mocking thus the Savior's claim. Saints and angels crowd around him, own his title, praise his name, crown him, crown him, spread abroad the victor's fame. Hark, those bursts of acclamation. Hark, those loud triumphant chords. Jesus takes the highest station. Oh, what joy the sight affords. Crown him, crown him. Crown him, crown him, crown him, crown him, King of kings and Lord of lords, King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, you're calling us to diligently pursue you today. Help us to crown your son in our hearts, to publicly confess your great name as far and wide as you will allow us in this world Thank you for your promise that we've seen through Zechariah that you and you alone will one day bear the splendor in all dignity and dominion over the earth. Cause us to worship you rightly and serve you faithfully until you return, at which time we will crown you as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.